Well, with your crossing phrase, uh, I'm here with Elliot Tomin, and uh, of course, I'm, I'm John Penna. So this is Earth Month. So the International Religious Freedom Summit we just came out of, and uh, we have a series of interviews. Uh, we're going to really be releasing two a week. Uh, we were very fortunate to talk with uh, Mr. David Curry, uh, who's a USERF commissioner, the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom, as well as uh, the president and CEO of uh, Global Christian Relief. And uh, it's just very fortunate to be able to have him sit down with us and share his priorities as a commissioner and his organization. Uh, and then one step far, further, you know, what, what he's prioritizing. Uh, and so uh, everyone enjoy the, uh, hope you enjoy the interview and we'll have commentary in the back end. Welcome to Crossing Phase. The, we're at the Earth Summit right now, so that's what all the background noise is. And we're lucky enough to have Mr. David Curry with us with Global Christian Relief and a USERF commissioner, United States Commission for National Religious Freedom. He's lucky enough to have him step away and give us a look some time. Welcome. Thank you, GT. Nice to be with you. So, you know, we, I kind of broke the ice when you were saying, what, what questions are you going to ask me? Is it a gotcha? And I, I, I promised no Pauline doctrine. So, <laughs> yeah, make sure we didn't get into, you know, the 14th apostle? Or is it the 13th apostle? What, 13th. 13th, okay, because Judas tapped out, right? Oh, good point. Okay, all right. I'm not sure. You already caught me on, on one thing. So, go. I'll just make it sure. I don't know. I, it's hard to keep it all straight sometimes. But, you know, one of the things that, we, we have t a short amount of time, and, and I, wanted, I did a few podcasts leading up to the Earth Summit. Uh, and I wanted to, while I have you, as a USERF commissioner, which is you know, an entity formed by IRFA, uh, and as someone who's leading not only a community, but uh, an organization that focuses on international religious freedom, where do you see the status of, of Earth right now? Well, I think as you mentioned uh, you know, prior to the podcast, there's, the conditions have never been worse for religious liberty around the world that I'm aware of. Certainly in the modern age, uh, there's more dictators, uh, trying authoritarian, let's just call it that way, uh, regimes and governments that are trying to either control people's access to Bibles, Korans, but also practice their faith in community with others. You have more extremism of all different kinds that are, are attacking religious minorities. So I think the conditions out there are more difficult. I think it's going to call upon us to to pull together and try to rally people and get people out of this kind of uh, daze that they're in. I think the general population doesn't know or doesn't care. And when I say doesn't care, I don't mean because they're literally cruel. I just mean... Oh, if somebody has a problem on the other side of the world, it, it, it's awfully hard to break through to people. Ooh. And so your average American, average person in a Western society that has all of the, at least the trappings of institutions where you can go to a court and have, have a reasonable expectation you might get a hearing, sure. uh, where if you go to a police officer, you, you have a reasonable expectation that they might but, uh, you know, handle the law equally amongst the various, all of these kind of things. Um, if you, people who live in their society, they're not really tied into the desperate need 
that's going on around the world around religious freedom because it is it is the point at which all of these negative forces are attacking civilization. I appreciate that 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 insight. I mean, you know, freedom to believe, to change, to choose, to not believe. You know, that's 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 the that's the mandate out of Urfa, right? And so, um, as as it comes to measuring the freedom of freedom religion belief, religious freedom globally, and and setting the priorities, we know it's getting worse. We know what's happening, right? We have two reports. Just we have the we have the Pew report, which is the independent entity, and sometimes Gallup. But we have Department of State report, and then we have the USERF report. We know what the policy requisites are. We know what what conditions uh, are in most countries, right? What do you see? How do you to see a, a way of, of operationalizing that within the, the construct of USERF, and then also your organization? Well, I think from the USERF pr- uh, position, uh, what that the role of USERF is to give uh, unvarnished advice to the administration, to Congress, and including the State Department, uh, because there are just so many other political methodologies that people use to measure a crisis. When they do their crisis mapping, sometimes they think they, they, they shy away from the religious components in spite of the fact that many of these actors in these points of conflict around the world are telling you this is a theology right so i think you can't crisis map out religious freedom but i think there are people that want to nigeria is a great example of this where you have religious uh, you have islamic extremists killing five six thousand christians every year and four five six thousand muslims moderate muslims every year yeah. And yet, the administration, the people within the State Department, at least, do not want to identify this as a country of particular concern because they're afraid that calling it by such on a religious standard is going to inflame the religious discussion. So it's a kind of a backwards way of thinking. So we have to be a watchdog at USERF to call out people and to challenge them to the higher ideal of, like, look, where um, where we can't, we need to hold tight to the value of religion, uh, freedom of religious belief. People should have the ability to read a secret text, to decide for themselves what they think about it. If they want to change their mind about their faith, that they should be able to do so. And this seems pretty obvious from my perspective, but most, many, many places anyway around the world, people. If they were born into a certain family, they can't, they can't change their mind. To me, that strikes the heart of what it means to be human, what it means to have a spiritual journey. So, uh, you know, if you can't learn, I mean, I could tell you my faith, I came to my faith really deeply in college. And it, I've continued to grow, to learn, to read something that you know, changes my mind about the way I see things. Thankfully, because I was so young, ignorant, and you know, naive about things when I first um, you know, started out. So, I mean, that's the process is it, of spiritual awakening, I think. And I think that's important. We can't lose sight of that. And I appreciate the, the, you know, the insight because, you know, a lot of people don't, and bringing it down to something like Nigeria, right? You mentioned, just like with ISIS, right? It was, I fought very hard to make sure that we got Muslims into the, desig- the genocide designation. And it was a hard fight slugging it out. 
um, you know, there's Christians, Yazidis, and then they said, we're going to make sure we say other religious minorities, but that includes Muslims, right? So, and, uh, but if we're not working in totality together towards her, it doesn't work because we're now jockeying. But I wanted to kind of, I wanted to ask you, what did, what, you've been at Yusuf now for how long? Two years. Almost two years, right? So, uh, and you got, are you, did you get re-up? I, I w- I'm hoping to be reappointed here. Okay. In May. Yeah. In May. So, um, what, in the last two years, what would you consider a success? And what would you consider a, 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 you know, a failure within, and it doesn't have to be yours. It could, you know, you, yeah. We could throw everybody else under the bus at you, sir. But, let me, but what would you consider like is something that would be a, an earth wind? Yeah. I think, um, I think when I look at the environment, I think there are multiple pressures that are new and evolving, such as censorship through social media, uh, the ability to track people technically through authoritarian regimes to be able to track their usage online and and when they attend you know i'm thinking of china and others so i think there are new challenges that we have not responded to so i don't think we're quote winning uh, because i think uh, governments and extremists are motivated and in a sense don't have to build anything they just have to destroy and I think there are some wins. I think people are beginning to see that uh, we're beginning to change people's mind on on what it, India, for example, what their what their real end goal is. And I think yeah, I love the Indian culture. I love India as a country, but I have to be realistic. Despite the fact that every single administration needs quote needs them as a balance in their political game with China, um, I think people are beginning to realize even within the Biden administration and hopefully, uh, you know, the, uh, other, the other side of the fence as well, that India, that fundamentally, we're not sharing our perspective on human rights. Right. They're, they're, they are targeting Muslims. They are targeting Christians. And they're trying to create a, what they see as a Hindu super state around their nationalistic political agenda. It's the BJP party and Minister Modi. And this last week, for example, they, they had torn down, you know, a couple of decades ago, they intentionally tore down a 400 year old mosque. They had built this massive new uh, Hindu temple, and it's just crushed the, the Muslim community that seen that as a historic site. And in the statements he's making, he's basically signaling and telling the world, like, this is what we're all about, is the preeminence of the Hindu believers in this country. He's already prioritized. That's the sort of thing I, I think is greatly troubling. But I think people are beginning to wake up on it. So I don't think you're going to be able to look at it, uh, a bunch of unalloyed, you know, victories. But I think... We're going to have to change people's minds first because we all know the policymaker do not respond to uh, just what's good law. They want to see where the people are at. They're responding right. This is a populist era, I'm afraid. So what, whoever is crying the loudest receives to be getting the most attention. I worked about five years ago as work, but what was talking about maybe maybe a little bit longer than that. And they were closing down a, a church a week Turning a church a week in India, yeah. and uh, and so and, and I when I was advocating with a Muslim population, got about two hundred two hundred million Muslims there. You know, like what am I doing? You know, you got to figure out a way to 
to, to advocate and, and, and engage. And the policy records were still were present then. Um, and so translating them into actionable items is a tough thing. I'm sure you're experiencing that at, at user. But as an organization, global inclusion, global inclusion relief. And so what, what's, you know, the key, the, the top three areas you're operating in right now and where you think that there's, I'm from a Christian perspective and a multi-faith perspective where you're, where you're gaining ground. I think one of the things we're really excited about is our violence index. And this speaks to the, uh, the, some of the subjects we talked about because we, we are putting together an index of all incidents of violence uh, based on religious issues so that you can be able to pull up and search how many attacks against Muslims in Nigeria, how many attacks against Jews in a particular area. So people will be able, it's a da- we're building a database that's accessible to everybody. And I'm hoping it's going to be a tool that people will use to really raise, uh, you know, and by the way, baseline, these are going to be baseline numbers, all publicly confirmed cases so that it's unassailable. And we're really just going to try to build a foundation for the case that this needs to be uh, the focus uh, moving forward. Human, the human rights around people's ability, their, their identity and their faith should be, should be very personal. So uh, I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be really exciting. It's on our website, globalchristianrelief.org. Uh, and it's validated by the Institute of International Religious Freedom. So it's, it's a great, I think it's going to be a great tool. Uh, when I look at the landscape, to answer your question more directly, I don't, I, I, I have to look through the lens of challenges and problems, not victories. Uh, we're going deep across the Sahel region, Nigeria, Chad, Burkina Faso. We think Mali is going to be even more problematic in the next couple of years. These are regions that would have the capacity to tip over into great chaos because you have young populations, the young people unemployed, could be easily radicalized, um, really incompetent governments, incompetent or in, uh, corrupt in some cases, and uh, extremists who have money and motivation. So that's a, that's a toxic mixture. You can have events, the government's not responding. You know, it's just, I, I, and we, you could lose an entire region of Africa. In some ways, Ni- the north of Nigeria is already unmanageable. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Uh, and try to remember, some people consider it like a failed state. Again, if you talk to the State Department about that, they, they believe that, I think they believe their personal charisma or their political acumen can help draw that back, but the reality is it's gone. Uh, and the government does not control large swaths, the Nigerian government does not control large swaths of its, of its country. And I was there six weeks ago and saw this myself where, um, you know, these camps of IDPs are living in, you know, 15 minutes from, from uh, Boko Haram camps and, and other camps. And it's just a constant fear. And the government, there's no expectation the government will protect you. So I don't see victories. I really see more challenges. And Nigeria would be one of them. Greatly concerned about India, as I mentioned. Obviously, China's sophistication. Uh, I think is a foregone conclusion. What I'm concerned about, uh, sophisticated persecution, 
of Muslims pursues others from Angon. Uh, but what I'm concerned about now is the next step is their marketing, the, the tools to other governments, to regimes, to control. Uh, because you have the capacity now, you have, through their technology, they can monitor for you, you restrict your travel, and essentially put entire populations, religious communities, in home arrest without anybody knowing what's going on. Because they just never can leave their apartments. And it's, it can all be done technically through the augmented AI and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a really spooky feat. I mean, I, but like it's, it's, the insight is, is, is uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's real, it's near, it's real, near real time. And I appreciate that. The, the data is something that I've been big on, getting away from anecdotal storytelling about religious persecution. Um, and, and, and yes, this is why that violence index is going to be so helpful. Yeah, yeah. Like how many, uh, you know, how many Muslims were killed? It's in the index in Nigeria. Yeah. How many Christians were killed? It's in there. So pe people will be because because until you understand that Muslims and Christians are being killed in Nigeria, you don't begin to understand the, the scope of the problem. Anybody who, because of their faith and their moral framework, who stands up to these extremes will be killed. It, it, the data is amazing, is, is, is where it's at, because data need direct to drive policy, to drive where funding goes. And for a long time, it's just been anecdotal. You know, and, and even the user reports and, and the, the state of Dark, Dark, Dark Harmony State reports come from sometimes secondary or tertiary sources. So they're not even, it's not even verified information. Um, and so uh, something that, that, that I've been big on for the last, the last 10 years. Uh, and so it's nice to know that something like that is happening. And you're, it's, it's, not, it's not just about persecuted Christians, which there was a, you know, there was a sort of whole curve of making sure. Ver verifying the different populations of Christians that were persecuted globally, and uh, and now to include those other faith groups from a Christian-backed organization is is not only fascinating, but it's it, it makes the, the the data more relevant. You know, it makes it more um, more poignant in in making sure that there's a sort of an even-handed look. And you know what I'm talking about, I, I you know. Totally you know, so yeah, I think this is an important factor um, that you know, obviously. Uh, my, my understanding of Christian theology is that, that people, uh, it's an inside job. So we don't need to force people into a, a faith framework. We can allow people to, to, to go on their spiritual journey. We have to identify if people are not free to make up their own mind about their faith, it, then the faith is not legitimate. It's, uh, it has to be something that a core set of beliefs that they adopt yeah. in their heart and their mind. So we don't have to be proprietary. And people need the freedom to, to, to choose and to practice their faith in peace. And, and uh, so we're, I want to promote the real truth about what's happening because I think uh, if people aren't free to choose, then it's, it's gonna, it has greater problems. If you can't decide what you believe, that's in uh, the Western world doesn't really understand how deep this is, whether it's, your 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 faith or anything else or that not to say that you know you don't believe it you grenade this so, it's so fundamental i don't i wonder why others don't grasp its attention well i i first of all i appreciate you taking the time i and, and i and it was very thoughtful for you to you know open up the book on you surfing and global christian relief to us a little bit and uh 
And I hope I can have you back to talk a little bit with more specificity about some of the stuff we chatted about, some other stuff. You were there for the interview, uh, Elliot, and you, you sat in on that. And uh, what did you think? What was your, what was your takeaways, your top three takeaways when it comes to, you know, the interaction with, with, uh, with Mr. Curry and his, his, his interaction or his, with, uh, with the Earth Movement? Well, uh, one thing that definitely strikes me um, coming into it as someone from an evangelical background is that there is sort of an implied sympathy within evangelicalism for the uh, idea of religious freedom and freedom of thought, because uh, as an evangelical Christian, I would believe that I know the truth and that assuming that I have the freedom to present the truth to some other group of people, that eventually at least a certain portion of them will come around to seeing it. And so their freedom is my freedom or vice versa. And so David Curry is leading an organization that by name uh, is really focused on the um, advocacy for persecuted Christians, but over time, as I understand it, has expanded that view to take in persecuted religious minorities in general because of this kind of sympathy for the, the, the notion of freedom in and of itself as being a good thing. And uh, here he is working with his organization to build a tool that tracks incidents of violence against religious minorities around the world and using those incidents as something of a, a metric to bring awareness and to, to uh, read the pulse of what's happening uh, in the world of religious freedom. What are your thoughts on the possibilities of a tool like that, uh, whether there is a need for it, and how... Uh, important a role it might play in this area well you, you know one of the my biggest passions in 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 religious freedom and one of my priorities is is data right bringing data to uh, to the movement and most of the most of the the uh the, the policy priorities and i would say most almost all of them as well as the funding priorities come from anecdotal sources. Uh, even even the USERF and report and the State Department reports, a lot of the citations are from secondary tertiary sources. Um, it's only in recent years, and what I mean by that is really within the last 10 years people have been talking about it, but in the last five years uh, has there been some some priorities made towards you integrating data into the international religious freedom and 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 what's and, and then analyzing those numbers appropriately? Um, so the, so it was, it was refreshing um, uh, and 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 actually just just fin- it was just really fantastic to hear of a group. Uh, privately funding data analysis 
uh, and aggregating of data from verifiable sources, which I think is a manifestation in, 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 in David Carew is, you know, quite open about this is that, you know, since his time at Earth, or USERF, you know, this is one of those things where he sees that this is being a priority because it affects and impacts all faith groups, which is part of the reason I mean, you're in, you're in USERF because you want to, you're, you're appointed official within the earth, the earth movement, uh, within a quasi government agency, but for someone to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just focus and prioritize my, you know, my community, I'm going to start building tools that brought in, brought in this person, this, the spectrum is, is, was really neat. It was neat to hear. I mean, I, the, my, you know, my recording is going into the earth of their summit, uh, you know, it was, I must say pessimistic, but it was, it was, I think fair and honest. Now being, having somebody has a 25 year history, um, or maybe a little bit more in the earth movement, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge is, and I'll give you an example of how data is not a priority in the earth movement is that, so I, I, I wrote an RFP and the, and the first code book for data analysis <clears throat> on, 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 on religious persecution. Um, and, and it became an RFP and it was funded, but then it wasn't refunded. So the pilot exists, it's out there. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, about $750,000, uh, that was awarded through the Bureau's conflict stabilization operations. And so they tested it out with ACLED and, uh, which is an, uh, a, a, a data, a bunch of data nerds and, and they ran it for a few years and then, and then it sort of fell down because they didn't, they didn't, uh, address it as a priority. So. And that was in 2018, 2019, uh, all the way up to 2020 was when the funding ran out. And so one of the challenges when it comes to, to data analysis is what, right? So you have the Pew Institute, which everybody quotes, and they are measuring religious persecution. I'm critical of the rubric because I, the rubric is Western centric. It needs to be broadened uh, to address different cultures and how they view religious, religious freedom or religious persecution, because it's not just incidents of violence. And that's generally where things go, incidents of violence, because there's all, there's a, there's a, there's a strata, a spectrum of discrimination that goes all the way through. And so what was great about what David Curry is doing is they're putting this together. It's open source and it starts with, it's, it's focusing on incidents of violence. Uh, I, and I, I would hope that he backtracks into the minutiae of religious persecution that that does that that, that don't result in incidents of violence, those implicit elements. But uh, but it was refreshing to have this conversation. He's you know enthusiastic. He's you know he's 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 in, he's in the game for this multi faith uh, religious freedom uh, movement and not only that he's mobilizing the resources of his organization to act as sort of a force multiplier for his his time at USERF so it was, it was actually really kind of neat to hear um, a, a commissioner not only you know mobilizing his own resources but then from there looking at it from a broad view and and 
you know, kind of like, you know, up on the hill and looking towards the horizon and taking it all in. And, and that's the sense that I got from the interview and my conversation with him. But the, the data is like something that I've been fighting for for years. Yeah. Um, coming at it, you know, um, professionally, I, I build websites and looking at it from that, you know, from a kind of an imperfect analogy from that world, if you are troubleshooting a website, trying to figure out what's wrong with it, you've got, you know, warnings, errors, and then fatal errors. A fatal error is something that's breaking the website until the fatal error is corrected. The website simply will not function. And then you kind of go down the hierarchy from there. And when it comes to the world of religious freedom, um, for me, I see violence or coercive force as a fatal error. Like if we're talking about imagining a world in which there is no such thing as religious oppression, it's very hard to, to actually wrap your mind around what that world would look like. But, uh, one thing I think anybody involved in this movement can hopefully agree on is that violence or coercive force has to be off the table entirely until we can say that no violence and no coercive force is being employed in the advancement of religious principles. Um, we can definitely say that, uh, freedom of religion has not been fully realized across the globe. And so something like tracking incidents of violence as a metric is it's like a fatal error it's like a triage it's like, like you're highlighting things that absolutely definitely should not be happening and in the world of religion in my opinion as as soon as violence or coercive force is being employed in any context related to these things something has broken and needs to be addressed in a very immediate and aggressive way. Well, I think you hit that sort of nail on the head there. But the, what, how do you address that? So how do you implement something like that when you have a tradition of martyrdom? So let, let me let me let me step back to early in my career. So I was involved in in Darfur and 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 Sudan. I was I spent some time and. Uh, it was interesting because there was a number of groups, Save Darfur and and all these other organizations, who were involved in 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 the conflict in Sudan. And everybody saw the the two Sudans as a solution, right? And then what do you do, right? Uh, well, you know, Save Darfur, we've saved it, you know. So there was a a, a group of of three to five organizations that, that changed over into this super organization that was called United End Genocide. And <clears throat> what was funny about that, I was maybe more brash, I have no idea. But I go, so what what's what is so what's genocide? What is it? From your perspective, from an organizational perspective. So all these organizations that had funding had to figure out how to maintain their, 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 their mission. And then from there, um, so they all kind of pulled their resources and, and, and became this, 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 this NGO. And what was funny to me was they had made it, they had, they had their own 
sort of company definition. And the company definition was, well, it's not genocide until it hits around 10,000 people. Then that we get involved. So, so I just, I remember this conversation and I said to myself, well, boy, if you're at the three or 4,000 per people mark, that's pretty terrible, but you don't, you're not weighing in on it. They go, well, we would be monitoring it until it gets this point at this level. And I go, what a great sustainability model. You, you kind of let, you kind of are accepting the genocide until it hits a critical mass that you've defined, but then it's something that will be work, you know, it'll create a book of business. And so I, this is kind of what I think when I think about this stuff is like, how do you, how do you, how do you deal, it, it, it behooves us in the earth movement to, to use the pew numbers, which are solid and they're verifiable. And it's a great evaluation of religious persecution. It's a great talking point. 70% uh, of the world is, you know, over 70% of the world is faithful and 83% of them are persecuted. And the number keeps going up every year, which everybody knows by, if they've listened to the podcast before, how critical I am about the earth movement and how it, it since the ratification of Earth, which is 25 years ago, we, we are religious, religious persecution has been on the rise and it's at the worst it's ever been. And I always say that, you know, there's a small group of NGOs aggregating the funds. There's a small group of people, of elders that manage this, that manage the earth movement and they haven't stewarded it appropriately um, by any rubric, really there's persecutions on the ride. But one of the factors is that if you have a tradition of martyrdom, right? You have a tradition of, of persecution, then you have to, you, you, you have a tendency to wait until it gets to something severe because not only is it fit into your faith tradition, um, it also is good for business, just like the United and genocide, right? So this, this, you, you need to make sure that you can, if you're not using data, that you can pop these big stories and you could say, this is what's going on. You know, we have, uh, a, 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 one of the best white examples I can give is that we had the drawdown in Afghanistan and, uh, one of the biggest, one of the NGOs that I, that I talked about, uh, 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 one of the NGOs, the small NGOs that aggregates a lot of the funds, and it was led by one of the elders of the International Freedom Movement. They had their, the, 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 the campaign, and they've been in business for a long time, 20 years. Because our biggest campaign, our, our most funded campaign for fundraising, uh, the, the biggest donations, the most donations, the most amount of money we ever made was on Afghanistan. And, they, and it was all being the person, the, the secret Christian community within Afghanistan. So there's no data to support that secret Christian community. There's certainly Christians there. Um, there's a lot of people that there's, there's a, there's a, there's a handful of people that converted when they were for NGOs and, and so forth. There was certainly uh, Christian groups that were saying, if you convert, we got a ticket on a plane out of here. Mm -hmm. That was happening. Yeah. And I know that, I know that very, very specifically because I, 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 I ran the NEO, uh, the non-combat evacuation with Joshua Bustos. And so, um, basically getting every plane that, every civilian plane that went in there went through our, uh, um, our company. So, <clears throat> So we knew all the flights, we knew all the manifests, we knew all that stuff. So we knew exactly what was going on. 
But then uh, just to give you a little perspective, this is how the Shia and Sunni are the dom are dominant faiths. Islam is dominant faith in, in, in Afghanistan. 0.03% are religious minorities. So where does that come from? It comes from the CIA fact book. And those religious minorities are Hindus, Zoroastrians. Um, so, and, uh, um, and other religious minorities that, you know, Buddhists, they're from that area. So the, 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 there'd be a fraction of a, of a fraction of a percent that would be Christians, right? But this, they, they, but, but they were able to raise a lot of funds by, by, by an, an anecdote. There's secret Christian communities that are trying to escape, uh, the Taliban's in charge, um, religious persecution is going to happen. And so imagine you've got this whole population of people uh, that are not Christian who are going to be persecuted by by the Taliban. Some religiously, some not religiously, right? And the focus is the Christians in, in, in Afghanistan. And, the, and there's no data to support that community, that, that the existence of that community. There's data to support the existence of the other communities. So, um, and the martyrdom tradition uh, and that, that, that part of the DNA within the, within the Christian community made it for this one NGO and, and a number of other NGOs, but this one NGO, their most successful fundraising campaign ever. Now, was the, now is the, are those, those funds going to a general fund, right? And they weren't used for the intended purpose because there's a lot of it is, is like I said, it's anecdotal, it's a story. So there's, I, I go through this sort of like dialogue when it comes to data. And I think that David Curry is on the right track. He's going incidents of violence and then backtracking it and with verifiable information. Um, I think it's, a, and, and he's probably one of the first Christians that I've spoken to that is running an organization that was Christian centric, that is stepped out of that into this idea of religious persecution, incidents of violence for all, verifiable data, open source, and we're going to build on that. Um, I, I'm I'd be curious to see what the rubric is, you know. Uh, because I'm one of the other things I'm critical about when it comes to data is, is what is the, what, what is, how are you evaluating religious persecution? <laughs> so that's, it, it is, is religious persecution a doomsday cult like Daesh, right? Like, so like, like, like ISIS in Afghanistan, who then goes to the Pashtunwani, the, 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 and utilizes the Pashtunwani and the Pashtun people, their code of conduct for refuge, is that religious persecution? So they are, the Pashtunwani is a, a, a very sort of ancient code. And within that code, there are very specific precepts. Uh, and a, a, a population could feasibly manipulate them to create a safe haven for themselves. Uh, for example, Nanawate. Nanawate is a, um, if you invoke it, even even if you're my enemy, and my, I'm I'm about to, to 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 slay you, if you invoke that, then I have to pull away. I have to house you, feed you until you're ready to and protect you until you're ready until you're ready to leave. So, is that a form of religious persecution? Um, and who would know how? Who would know that of that existence other than someone who's Afghan? 
uh, or a scholar maybe in that area, but and how that can be manipulated as ISIS religiously persecuting the uh, uh, the Pashtun people, right? If you would have to make a case for that, if two wrongs don't make a right, then I would definitely say that two rights don't make a wrong. And so if there is something built into the ethos of, uh, of religion that um, someone else can take advantage of in order to gain sanctuary or refuge or escape from violence, then that is an inherent good within the makeup of that religion. Sure. And you would have to make a strong case that assuming that it results in the foregoing of said violence, the fact that someone can take advantage of that for any reason is an inherent good. There are plenty of stories from the early church of people seeking refuge in churches because the church carried forward this tradition that the temple was a place of refuge, right? And so I think the phrase that was used was clinging to the pillars of the temple, right? Right. Where someone who, you know, for, or, or you have this, you have the, like the sanctuary cities in the Old Testament, the idea that if someone was um, in danger of being killed because of a blood feud or some other uh, transaction of justice, that they could go to these places, these temples, or in the case of the first century and, and later the churches, and seek refuge there um, to be certain that they would get a fair hearing. Right. And I believe that that's a very positive expression of religion. Sure. And it would, you would be hard-pressed to make a case against it. Well, I, I'm not. I, that, I'm not making a case against it. What I'm saying is, is that these elements need should be taken into account when expanding the measurements, uh, how you how you evaluate data. Yeah. All right. And so some would be eliminated. You might sort of say it's a Pashtunwali is a is a cultural code, not a religious code. Uh, although it is a lens that the that the, that the Pashtun people look at and and operationalize faith. So it might be eliminated, right? But you need to have a hard look at the code yeah. and where different parts of the code have different things uh, related to faith and how faith is operationalized in daily life. Mm -hmm. So like Nanawate is just one of them, right? Azat is another one, honor, right? So so you have these different things. And I think that, that, that you know, the latter, this latter part of my career, I've spent quite a bit of time analyzing such things. And so, uh, and coming out with, I have two scholarly papers that are coming out on this. So, um, but I, I think that, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it was like, is it what an interview uh, with someone who's, like I said, a practitioner who's now in an official position, which I put a lot of stock in practitioners, you know, I, the nerds, can write all they want. The academics uh, can write all they want. Uh, there's, a, there's a podcast that was funded by um, by a grant that I got at the Religion News Foundation, Religion News Service, that was funded by the Lilly Foundation. We got $4.9 million. And part of that $4.9 million went to the conversation. And if you don't have a PhD and you're not an academic, you can't you can't, you can't get through the door on that, and that podcast. Mm -hmm. 
which wasn't the intention. The intention is, was to talk about you know faith and the idea of faith in action. Uh, and you have some of the nerds as part of the community, but you'd have to have other practitioners, professionals, and 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 so the challenge is is that if it gets too academic, then the practical elements don't don't. Uh, don't 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 get people aren't part of it. They don't they don't infiltrate the, the the they don't challenge what the way in which things are done in a way in which it can continuously improve. Um, and of course, if it's the old other way, if it's just practitioners, or if you're just someone that's leading by faith, you have blind spots because if it's just your faith, you have those blind spots, right? Or you might come up with those prejudices, right? So, like we were talking about at the beginning, it's like well, genocide. We have a business model, so genocide is ten thousand or more. Now, now, United you know, Genocide might have changed that. I don't know what their what their, I don't know what their rubric is now. I don't know what the, what their point of critical mass is. But it was a funny conversation back then. Uh, but then, when it comes to if you have a traditional martyrdom, then you need martyrs. How do you how as a part of your faith tradition, right? So you're good. You don't you 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 almost don't want to measure incident, any incidences before you hit violence, right? Because you you want to you want to get to that point, so that you it's part of you, so you 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 can then come in and, and rescue or or almost celebrate the the, the martyrdom right. So um, I think that these are the the some of the challenges when it comes to looking at data. Uh, but I think David Curry's on the right track. I'm not accusing his initiative of any of this. I'm just saying these are the thoughts that go in my mind when I start thinking about this because. For the last ten years, I've been really passionate about getting data into the in, infusing data into this, and then making sure that it's broad based, that it doesn't just come that we start with this Western centric model, but we don't have so much hubris that this is the way in which we evaluate religious freedom. We have to take in some of these cultural and contextual lenses. Um, you know, one of the things that happens is that you might have a faith community that. That's persecuted. A faith community that's persecuted, but it's not because of their faith, right? So they, they it could be because of ethnicity, or it could be because of political alignments. But then what happens is they'll say, they'll say, well, you want this community is persecuted, and uh, you know they're 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 of this religious minority, so it must be faith, right? And without looking at it with more critically, and then finding out well, there's ethnic and political elements that might come to it. Um, it was a big part of my my conversation with with uh, there. USAID had a summit uh, about five years ago. Six, no, more than that, six years ago. About um, I was uh, I was like the lessons learned, or you know what was learned out of uh, practice from religious freedom, and what and I spoke about this particular element. And so I it it was very refreshing now to see to see Jim Curry operationalize his his practical experience in in user for a broad base uh and for all faiths and and that's that's innovative usually user commissioners have their little pet projects uh and so um and you know we're all about religious freedom but i'm going to focus on this country i'm going to focus on this faith i'm going to focus on this prisoner of conscience that sort of thing and so uh and david curry is doing all that but he's also kind of injected this idea of this of how are we going to aggregate data and how are we going to utilize that to make decisions? And that's, um, I, I don't want to undercut how profound that is because it, it, he's one of the few people that are doing that. 
Um, and, and there's not many out there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, so much of what we hear, certainly the, in the evangelical world, uh, is made up of anecdotes and emotional appeals. Right. And, um, just the fact that he, uh, as an evangelical is breaking out of that and trying to move into the world of using quantifiable data as a guidepost for action, whatever that action may be, is a positive development. And obviously, I'm speaking, you know, with, I'm painting with a very broad brush there, but I thought it was good to hear. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a, a wonderful um, moment in time because you kind of walked in, I walked into the Air Summit looking to, to see, are there pockets of, of innovation happening? And they're, they're bigger than pockets. You know, and it, I mean, there's no, it's no small thing that you have the head of an organization as large as, as his and a user and as, and simultaneously, you know, pulling double booty as a, a user commissioner, prioritizing such a thing. And so it's not something that's sort of cottage, it's happening and it's forward and it's out there. And so, you know, to have a, an evangelical leader like David Curry moving in, in such an interesting direction is, uh, is, is, um, I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, nothing short of a, uh, providential epiphany. Can those words go together? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even sure what I know what that means, but I was trying to try to, I was trying to bring it home. You know, so, <laughs> providential epiphanies. Yeah. I, you know? I, I, if only you had gone into the interview, uh, letting him know what a prod- providential epiphany he was. <laughs> well, it, I, it, I'm sure I'll it would have led and, to a much better conversation. You know, maybe I'll listen to this and then, you know, it'll be, you know, David, providential epiphany. <laughs> uh, which I think, yeah. yeah, that's what they called him on the football team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been Crossing Phase. I appreciate you guys taking the time. Thanks so much. Thanks, John.